conversations and in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the, in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the God unknown. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ig ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead." Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom were Dionysus, the Arapagite, and a woman named Demarius, and others with them. Good evening. Tonight I want to talk to you a little bit about um, lessons from a master evangelist. You know, it, it worked out very well this morning, I didn't plan it this way, that Pastor Reed was talking about our role as ambassadors and uh, bearing this message of reconciliation. And so it just so happens that it fits very well with what I had planned for this evening and we hadn't coordinated that at all. I didn't know what aspect of communion he was going to be talking about. Uh, but you see the title above you, and if you'd like to follow along here with the scripture on the screen, you may. I want to say on the outset, if you have the Logos Bible app, you can log in and you'll see little signals appear on the, this corner, and that's what that means. It'll bring you right to the passage that we're looking at on that particular slide. But if not, if you've just got a print Bible, that's fine as well. Uh, you won't be missing out on a whole lot there. Um, from the passage that we just heard, we have the example of the Apostle Paul, somebody who I think is a master evangelist. 
And, uh, you know, as we think about our role as ambassadors in this world, uh, we, we often can get frustrated with ourselves. We feel like we should be reaching more people. We feel like we should be sharing our faith more often, but we get frustrated because we find we're not doing that. We're not doing it as well as we might hope that we, we could. And I find that whenever I get discouraged by something, I, I feel like I'm challenged when I'm presented with an example of somebody who does something very, very well. Okay, right now my son, uh, Caleb, is really into Dude Perfect. Okay, and I don't know if you've ever seen that. Look that up on YouTube uh, sometimes. Uh, it's a group of Christian guys, I'd say maybe in college age or a little bit older, and all they do is make videos of trick shots, you know, throwing a basketball from the top of a skyscraper and making it into the basket several stories below. And uh, so if you want something entertaining, you can, you can go and watch those. And they have a section on their website that says why we do what we do, and they have a message about Jesus Christ in there, which I think is really cool. And so when you see people like that who have these incredible skills, you're motivated, right? When I watch videos of somebody playing the guitar really well, I think, man, I'm terrible. I can't do anything but strum. Um, but this person can do all sorts of things and play really fast. I get challenged. I get pumped up by that. Um, after feeling discouraged, then I, I start to think, oh, I want to know how I can do that just as well. Well, maybe tonight this passage will encourage you a little bit to know how to witness a little bit better, because I think here we have an example of somebody who witnessed very well in a non-Christian culture, in a culture that was totally different than that of a biblical culture, a pagan culture, you might say, and did it well. Now, I'm not saying that everything the Apostle Paul did in the Scriptures was absolutely perfect. I don't think the Bible intends to present him that way. Certainly he had flaws, just like any one of us. But here, I think, in this particular chapter of Acts, we find an incredible example of how a person can use the culture around them to be able to share Christ with others, using some of the cultural narratives and the ideas that are found in a person's culture and use them to turn around for, to, to make a presentation of the gospel. That's what Paul does, and we'll be exploring that in a little bit. So here is the main thing we're going to be asking. What can we observe from Paul's example of evangelism? And this will form the outline for tonight. And again, I'll have it up on the screen for you. The first uh, point that I want to give to you tonight is that Paul had a heart that was sensitive to the spiritual needs around him. Okay, so Paul is in Athens. All right, we're jumping in the middle of the Acts story, and he's traveling to a bunch of different places, but for tonight's purpose, we're in Athens. And uh, he traveled there as a part of his second missionary journey. You'll see the map up here on the screen, and uh, I won't pretend that you can read all of the tiny text everywhere. What I really just want you to see is that red line that shows his path. There are three... Um, there are, multi, excuse me, there are multiple missionary journeys that Paul goes on in the book of Acts, but uh, this is the second one, and it occurs from Acts chapter 15 through 18. And you see all of these different paths that he takes. He starts down in the region of Jerusalem, and then he goes north and heads over to Greece, and then you can see that line uh, continuing back across the sea until he makes it back to Jerusalem. And uh, that's where this trip to Athens occurs. He, he visits several cities. And again, I, I, I imagine you can't read them, but uh, they include Troas, Apollonia, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, Corinth, Sancria, Caesarea, and Antioch. And for the passage tonight, we're just going to focus on this stop in Athens, which Pastor Cruz just read for us. And that probably took place in the summer of A.D. 50. So here's a picture of Athens, right? If, 
any of you could picture what Athens looked like, you know, before I showed this, this is probably what you were thinking about in your head, okay? You have um, the Acropolis, which is that big mound of rock, okay, that that temple is sitting on. That's probably the most famous part of Athens. And here's a close-up of the um, Parthenon, which is uh, resting on top of the Acropolis. It's a former temple, uh, the, the Athenian Acropolis is, dedicated to the goddess Athena, whom all the people of Athens considered their patron. So if there's one thing you could say, without getting on into all the history books and everything like that, if there's one thing that you could say Athens is known for, it's this history, this architecture, all of these different things culturally revolving around uh, this false worship of this plurality of gods, these temples that are built for these gods, and things like that. And so when Paul arrived in Athens, verse 16 tells us that the first thing he did was examine the, the landscape around him. So look at verse 16. It says, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. But more than just seeing idols around him, he had a spiritual sensitivity. He was grieved by the condition of the city. His spirit was provoked. He was troubled by this idolatry. Um, you could say, if you had an NIV tonight, it says his spirit was greatly distressed or he was deeply troubled or irritated, some have said, uh, because he saw this place was full of idols. The word here in Greek means a city submerged in idols. That's what John Stott, a commentator, uh, says. Or, as Ben Witherington puts it, a veritable forest of idols. I love that language, a forest of idols. Okay, just everywhere you look, there's statues and all kinds of things around. Um, one commentary puts it this way. City streets were often lined with statues of men and gods, and Athens was especially decorated with pillars mounted with heads of Hermes. Many visitors wrote of the evidences of Athenian piety, and from an aesthetic standpoint, Athens was unrivaled for its exquisite architecture and statues. Paul's concern here is not aesthetics, however, but the impact of idols on human lives. So here you can see some of the kinds of statues that Paul might have seen, or at least gives you an idea. A lot of these, of course, have broken down and these are recreations, but you get the idea. And he saw them, and, and he didn't just stop there and notice them and say, oh, those are pretty, th those are really nice. He was grieved by them. This is different than how many people would have seen the city. After all, those statues would have been impressive. Many would have been wowed at it. But Paul wept. Paul wept at it. And what is important here is that Paul was impressed by Athens not as a city of art, but as a city of false religion. So here's my question for you, as we try and make this relevant to our situation today. How often are we grieved by the signs of idolatry in our own culture? You know, it's one thing to go into a city and see all this amazing architecture. It's another thing to be spiritually touched by it. But you know, that takes our spirituality just to another level when we start to have that kind of sensitivity, that kind of heart for the lost. Um, Maybe, if any of us in the room ever get this chance, or maybe you've had this chance already, to visit Athens and see all these things, you might walk around and say, wow, this is amazing. These are wonders of the world. How did people construct it? But you know, the reality is, these are places where people worshipped false gods. False gods. And that's a terrible thing. And you know, you, you don't have to go to Athens 
to experience that same kind of thing. Even in a place such as Lebanon, you can find churches that are ornately decorated. You can go downtown and see ones that are made of marble or stone with stained glass windows. And if you were to go inside for a wedding or a funeral and see the inside, you'd be wowed by it. Even in our own county, you'd find examples of that. But how often do we actually ask the question, is that a church that teaches the gospel correctly? If not, then it's really something to lament more than it is something to rejoice and be wowed at. How often do we have a heart for signs of idolatry in our own culture? Um, Paul was grieved by what he saw, but he was also willing to do something about it. He was willing to witness to those who were lost around him. And this would have been a change from his original plan. You see, even though that map I showed you a second ago uh, is what we call his second missionary journey, what most people miss is that it wasn't intended to be a missionary journey at all in the beginning. And we know that from the scripture verses that we, go, we can go back to Acts 15, 36. Here's what he says before he even embarks on this journey. He says, after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit who? The brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. So Paul wasn't setting out just to do a missionary journey. He was setting out to encourage churches that already existed. As somebody who had planted churches before, he was going out just to go visit them, and he had an entirely different mindset about him. But that plan changed, and it only changed, when God spoke to him along the way and told him to go witness to some of the lost in other cities. So look at this, chapter 16, a little bit later. It says, Passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night, and a man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. <clears throat> and when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel. <coughs> Excuse me. To preach the gospel to them. So what I want you to see here is Paul's initial intent was not to go and evangelize to all these unreached cities. That was a change in plan. And that was a change in plan that God presented to him. And you know, to Paul's credit, he went along with it. He was willing to change his plans. So two questions here for you. Number one, as we look at this, do you have a sensitivity to the spiritual needs around you? He was diverted from what he originally intended to do, and that diversion led him to Athens. And when he got to Athens, he was touched by it. He was grieved by it, and he was willing to do something about it. He said, these are lost people. You know, I wasn't intending to be here, but there are lost people around me, and I need to witness, evangelize to these people. So do you have that kind of sensitivity? Or when you go somewhere, is it not even on your radar? You know, and as I say that, that, that applies to me as well. How often do I, me, David Brandt, go to Walmart, go to wherever, you know, get, to, get my oil changed, all these different things I could go into town and not have a mindset of evangelism at all. It's just not even on my radar. So examine yourself. How often do you have that kind of mindset? And even deeper, are you willing to do what the Lord calls you to do if he suddenly changes your plans. It's worth thinking about. Paul was willing to change everything that he was setting out to do 
because he saw the need in front of him, he saw what God was trying to tell him, and he had a heart for the lost. So what do we learn? Okay, reviewing, uh, Paul had a heart that was sensitive to the spiritual needs around him, and now the second thing we read is that he was willing to adapt his method of evangelism based on the culture of his target audience. That's the second reason why Paul, I think, is a great example of a missionary here in this passage. He didn't just preach to Greek people, okay, or Athenian people, okay? He didn't just say, I'm in Athens, there is one group of people here, I'm going to preach to the Athenian people and consider them all one lump sum. No, he understood that there were different cultures even in one city. So first, look at this, Paul witnessed to the Jewish people in Athens by preaching to their synagogues. Look at this, Acts 17, 17. He reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So you see, in that first part I've highlighted for you, he first spoke to the Jews and the devout persons. Now, I don't think that's all that great of a translation. Some of the other Bibles do it better. Um, they render it as God-fearing Greeks or God-fearing Gentiles, and I think that's a better way of putting it. Uh, in other words, they're proselytes. They're proselytes, sorry. Uh, they are people who have converted to Judaism, people who fear the God of the Old Testament, and, uh, and Paul is treating them all as one group here. So he, he treated them as one people because he could enter the synagogue to reach both, and both would understand references to the Old Testament. So that method of Paul entering the synagogues and witnessing uh, using the Old Testament is in keeping with Paul's method up to this point. And I just did a basic search in my Bible. So cool. I was looking up in Acts where the word synagogue was found, just to see if Paul did this anywhere else. And sure enough, he did. Here are some examples. Damascus. If we go to chapter 9, verse 20. He entered a synagogue and talked about Jesus being the Son of God and the Christ. Cyprus, chapter 13, verse 5, talked from the Scriptures. Antioch chapter 13, verse 14, and the rulers of the synagogue asked, brothers, if you have anything to say, which gave him an opportunity to speak, because back then, at that time, it was a common practice to invite, even on the spot, a, a visiting rabbi to be able to get up and stand and, and, and say something, to give the message for that day. And I think I'd be kind of scared if somebody called on me just at that moment, hey, brother, do you have anything to, to share? You'd have to be ready for it. But Paul was ready for it. And that was a common practice, and he took advantage of it. So when people, when he entered another city's synagogue, they said, Brother Saul, you are famous throughout the land. You know, he was, of course, a famous teacher, especially at the time when he was persecuting Christians. So he was well-known, and, and they would invite him. And he used that opportunity to talk about the gospel. In Iconium, chapter 14, verse 1, in Thessalonica, and also in Berea, 17, verse 10, the people examined the scriptures day and night. So what I found was, this isn't just a one-off thing. This is something Paul did everywhere that he went. This was his method, to go into the synagogues, to open up the Old Testament, because it was a point of commonality. He could say, hey, here in Isaiah 53, here's a prophecy. Do you know who that's talking about? That's Jesus Christ. He is the promised Messiah that you've been looking forward to. Um, and so when it says here that he reasoned in the synagogue in chapter 17, verse 17, with the Jews and devout persons, from everything we know about Paul up to this point, he likely shared with them from a Jewish perspective, and he treated them as their own specific culture in Athens and witnessed to them according to that culture. So here's another question to ponder. How can we replicate Paul's method? 
Think about the people that you know who might not be saved, but have some knowledge of the scriptures. Um, I don't think you could actually literally enter in a synagogue today and just say, I'm going to replicate Paul's method. He went in the synagogue, I'm going to go to the synagogue and just burst in and, and start talking. Okay? For one thing, in the culture of the day, he had an invitation to. Okay? And they would invite him forward. I don't think you and I have that same kind of invitation. Okay? So to apply this would not mean Paul went to synagogues, I've got to go to synagogues. No. But what we can say is Paul identified a group of people that knew the scriptures. And, and he was able to identify those people and single them out and say, okay, I can talk to them in a unique way that I can't with somebody who has never heard of the Bible at all. And so who do you know that might not be saved, but has at least some knowledge of the scriptures? Sarah was able to use that with me when I was in 12th grade, when we were getting to know each other, and I had attended church all of my life, but I wasn't saved. And we could have conversations, and she could have a conversation with me about that. Um, so you'll come into contact with people who at least some knowledge of, of the scriptures. And that would include people who are Jewish as well. Perhaps you know somebody who's Jewish or several people. You can talk to them about these prophecies and point them to Christ. Even somebody who is Muslim. The, you know, the, the Quran certainly doesn't paint Jesus in the same way that the Bible does. But you can at least use it as a starting point to talk about who really was Abraham. Who is Jesus? Who is he really? in contrast to some of the things that they say. And at some point, Paul had to break off from the understanding of the people he was talking to versus what the Bible actually says, but he started with points of commonality. So in review, he witnessed in the synagogues, but second, he identified another group of people, even within the same city, that was different culturally than that of the Jewish people. He used a slightly different approach in order to reach the pagan Athenians. He reasoned with them in the marketplace. Here it is, verse 17. And in the marketplace, he reasoned every day with those who happened to be there. Why did Paul go to the marketplace? Well, it was where the people were. And it was also a place to share ideas at that particular time. Uh, the Pillar New Testament commentary says this, in Greco-Roman times, the marketplace was the hub of urban life, a center for commerce and trade, but also for the sharing of ideas. For the first time, we are told that Paul directed his mission to the marketplace on a daily basis, day by day, it says, with those who happened to be there. And this also, turns out, was Socrates' method, who was a philosopher for many years before, and very familiar to the Athenians. Socrates, the philosopher of Athens was always available for discussion with anyone willing to converse with him in the marketplace. And some have gone as far as to suggest that Luke was trying to make a parallel here between what Socrates did and, and Paul. I don't know that I could go that far. But it certainly was a common method. It was certainly something that had been done by somebody else famous that would have been well known in this time. So Paul witnessed to these two groups of people, and then eventually that would lead him to a third group of people, the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, who are mentioned next in verse 18. Then some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Um, who were the Epicureans and Stoics? D to be honest, I could, I could go into it. I took like a few hours to try and figure that out myself, because philosophy wasn't my big 
<laughs> subject in college, and so I was really trying to rack my, and I have a whole paragraph here, I really do. So if you're really curious afterwards, I can give it to you in full. But in reality, I don't think it matters all that much for the purpose of this sermon. So I'm not going to give you a huge lecture on who the Epicureans and Stoics were, except to say that neither group really believed in a personal God or gods that was actively involved in this world. Both had this idea that if God exists, or if there were gods, as the Athenians believed, that he, they were distant. Either he or they were nowhere near us, and so really didn't play any role in life at all. And so they had a different mindset than that of Paul, a different worldview. And these uh, individuals were the leading philosophers of the time. And you can tell just by the words on here, they're not very kind to Paul. Um, it says here, what does this babbler wish to say? The word babbler here originally referred to scavengers or birds who picked up seeds. And, and the implication here is that Paul is somewhat of a, a hack philosopher in their eyes. You know, you're just picking up random ideas, and you're just throwing them together, and you're trying to sound smart like the rest of us, but you really are just a, a rookie in all this. You don't know what you're talking about, is what they're trying to say. Others of them, it says, misunderstand what he's trying to say. They say, you must be preaching foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. I want you to imagine something. As you're looking at this on the screen, imagine the word resurrection is capitalized, Okay. Because in their minds, there was a god or goddess for every idea. And so they're thinking, oh, well, this Paul, he's, he's talking about two new gods. One must be named Jesus, and the other must be named Resurrection. And so maybe he's just adding two more to all the other gods that we know. Okay, you can see they're really confused about what he's talking about. But yet, because philosophy is a big thing, and, and this is a place where all of these minds come together, they want to hear more about it. And so it says, they brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know this new teaching that you are presenting. And uh, it's easier to say if it's known by its other title, Mars Hill. Mars Hill, okay? That's how other Bibles uh, render that, but that's the same place. So here it is. If you look up on the screen, here is Mars Hill. And um, it'd be really cool someday to be able to go and see a place like this. Um, but for now, we've got the internet, right? So, which is cool. We can just pull all these pictures up. And hopefully you can see how tiny the people are. This is the rock uh, where all these ideas were discussed. And I understand years before this time that Paul shows up, it was used as a center of, of governing uh, the city of Athens, but it kind of had fallen out of uh, that much prestige. And, but it was still used as a place, number one, to try cases of murder, and also just for philosophers and other individuals to come and gather and discuss different ideas about religion or about civil matters, different things like that. What's cool is, if you go here, I'm told, and I, I have a picture here for you, uh, of steps that still exist, that were made um, even before Paul was around, and they're still there. And yet, whenever there uh, is a road that's put down in Lebanon or Myerstown, it breaks and they have to redo it like every two years. So they had something going for them. Apparently, their architecture was pretty stellar because it's still there. And of course, there's some repairs. You can see that. But this is still there. It'd be really cool to walk up the steps that maybe Paul walked up, you know? How cool would that be? Um, here Paul uses a, a more academic and philosophical approach to sharing the gospel. The point is that Paul used different methods based on the audience he was trying to reach. And we'll see that when we get to his talk here on this rock, he uses three different sayings that are very unlike his other methods of sharing the gospel in other places, where he uses cultural phrases or well-known um, axioms of the day to try and work in the gospel to these people. 
He's in a foreign culture, and he's trying to use that culture to his advantage. We'll get into that in a little bit. What do we learn so far, though? Here's an application for you. Number one, we need to take different approaches, even here in Lebanon. Okay? Lebanon is not one culture. And this is something that foreign missionaries have figured out a long time ago. It's not just that you go to Africa and there's the African culture versus the United States. It's divided up into hundreds, if not thousands, of different cultures based on language, based on different tribal practices, based on different things in regards to family and traditions and all these different things. And the same is true here. The same is true here. We just heard not too long ago, actually, when um, Bruce and Amber Althaus were standing up here on a Sunday morning a few weeks back uh, as they were talking about moving to New England. And they were telling us that New England is its own culture. And I would say, yes, having been there for a few years myself, absolutely. Um, I was blessed with the opportunity this past uh, spring to be able to talk to uh, the Northern Lebanon students and be the baccalaureate speaker at Northern Lebanon. And I have a friend that I went to seminary with and Bible college with, and he's now ministering up in Massachusetts. And when I told him I had that opportunity, he said, he almost laughed. He said, that's, that's amazing. There would be no chance at all that I would be given any kind of opportunity like that up here, that the schools would allow that to be in their building or anything like that. So is it a separate culture? Absolutely. And, um, and for anybody who has lived up there, yeah, you can probably attest to that. And even in Lebanon, people from different backgrounds, there are different cultures. Number two, we can't just have a one-size-fits-all approach to evangelism. Paul didn't. I don't think we should either. And I say this, having grown up and, and studied at Lancaster Bible College, and when we had an evangelism course, they gave us a book called Share Jesus Without Fear by William Fay. It's in our library. I love it. I love it. And I've even taught on it for youth fellowship before. Five simple questions that you can just have in your pocket, put on a card, and share with anybody. Talking about, you know, uh, what are your spiritual beliefs? And talking about God a little bit. And then asking, who is Jesus to you? And, and how do you think one person gets to heaven? And, and it keeps leading to more and more specific questions. And the idea behind it is it's meant to kind of fit in whatever situation you're in. And, and to a degree, it works. I love it. I think it's wonderful. But yet there's also another degree where conversations always take a different turn. And you know that. If you've ever shared the gospel with somebody, it's not like you can have a prepared script and say, all right, uh, I'd like to talk to you here. And this is, this is, that's actually what I did with my college roommate, by the way. I was a brand new Christian, didn't know how to witness. I had it all prepared, and I said, I need to talk to you. And I sat down with a piece of paper. It was very awkward. Um, don't recommend it. But at least I was, you know, I was faithful, and I, hopefully God will, I mean, he'll rebuke me rightly uh, when I get to uh, new heavens and new earth, and I'll see all the ways I did it wrong, but, you know, from where I was, it's all I had. But as you grow as a Christian, okay, you move beyond that, and you recognize that each conversation, each person has different questions, right? Each person is coming from a different background. We can't just open up this book and, and use that the same way with everybody. Application number three. We have to take into account the culture and background of the person we're talking to. And we already talked about that a little bit. Does the person know scripture? Are they a nominal Christian? Or, or are they Jewish? Or something like that. Um, if so, then scripture can be a starting point. If not, then you might want to start with something more basic about just the existence of God at all. Um, Paul varied his approach based on his audience. And we should too. And, and we should expect that there are many cultures even here in Lebanon. So with that in mind, ask yourself this. What is your synagogue? 
Okay, what is that place or those relationships that you have with somebody who knows Scripture to a degree? And where can you work that into the conversation, maybe, as an avenue to share the gospel? Secondly, what is your marketplace? Or what is our marketplace? So back then, in that culture, marketplace was where, where everybody was. And it's where you could talk about ideas freely, and that wasn't an awkward or strange thing to do. You know, people were willing to just have open conversations. So what does that look like here? Um, for people who are maybe not even religious at all? That's a tough one to answer. And I know a lot of church planners really try and think about that deeply. I know there are church planners, um, even Tim Zook, who, um, Pastor Zook, who, who is in our denomination, grew up in this church. I know he loves to go to Barnes & Noble or, or go into coffee shops um, to try and talk with people. I think that's a pretty close approximation. You're not going to get a one-for-one -one correspondence to what the marketplace used to be. But I think that's a place where you could go, you could sit down, have a conversation with somebody, and that wouldn't seem out of place. Um, and, and maybe discuss something. But that's not the only possible answer to that question, right? You gotta think about that yourself. Um, what's the marketplace for us today? What is a place that, that you frequent that you might be able to talk with people about? Maybe it's a soccer game, right? Maybe, like, it's a normal thing to go to your kid's soccer game and, and then talk to some of the other parents as you're waiting for the game to start or whatever. That's a normal thing, right? Um, maybe that's our marketplace. You have to think about that on your own. But these are things that made Paul an effective evangelist, and I think we can learn from. So to review, what can we learn? Number one, Paul had a heart that was sensitive to the spiritual needs around him. Number two, he was willing to adapt his method and evangelism based on the culture of his target audience. And number three, even though Paul's heart was deeply troubled by the idolatry he saw, he didn't respond in harsh anger and public rebuke to the Athenian people. Instead, he took a more gentle approach. This is more of an observation of what he did not do, right? Uh, he didn't stand on a soapbox and yell at everybody that walked by um, his, his particular stand. The, the text says that he reasoned in the synagogue, right there, reasoned with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace. And that's a very different tone. Um, why does that matter? Well, it stands in contrast, you might say, to standing in a street corner and, and, and yelling at everybody who passes by. That's, you know, we can think of examples like that of Westboro Baptist Church, possibly. You, you've seen that on the news before. You know, and this is more what Paul did. Whether it was to a group of people or individually, there's a marked difference in the tone of the first image that you saw and the second. And I think that's by design. Now, to be sure, Paul will talk about how people need to repent in verse 30. And he's going to mention how there's going to come a day of judgment. So I'll jump right there, Acts 17, 30 and 31, calling everybody to repent, and God will judge the world in righteousness. So it's not that he's shying away from what the gospel truly is. It's not that I'm saying, no, you don't mention these things ever or at all. That's, in fact, repentance is a primary aspect of the gospel, needing to turn away from your sins. Okay, So Paul does, in fact, call the Athenians to repent, but notice his approach is much more reasoned. The way he communicates that is more reasoned instead of fiery and bombastic. And so our application is that this should inform us as to how we should approach the non-Christian world. We should seek to reason with those we want to reach instead of taking an aggressive approach. Now, is there a place, perhaps, for an aggressive approach sometimes? 
I'm not laying this down as an absolute rule. Maybe there's some people who are just really arrogant and, you know, like Proverbs says, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. There are times for that where a sharp answer might actually help. But I'd say nine times out of ten, rather than us being like those individuals you saw holding up the signs, having no involvement or conversation at all trying to answer people's questions, I think that Paul's reasoning with people is the better approach. And you might say, well, didn't the prophets sometimes use fiery language when they rebuked people? Yes, yes they did. And Jesus did, in fact, use a whip to drive out money changers from the temple and call a certain group a brood of vipers. But you notice something. Who did the prophets and Jesus speak to when they uttered these things? Anybody know? God's people. God's people. Nine times out of ten, when you see those kinds of fiery examples of language, it's speaking directly to God's people when he calls them the brood of vipers and things like that. So uh, in times where their, their language was the harshest, it was when they were addressing God's people. Here in Acts 17, we see a different approach. And I think in evangelistic context, reasoning with those you're witnessing to is a much better approach. And that makes evangelism much more tricky, doesn't it? It means you can't just do a drive-by. You can't just post something on your door and say, well, somebody saw it and that's good enough. I witnessed to them. There I go. And I'm driving right past them. They saw it. That's the end of my responsibility. Um, to be sure, sometimes, like I said, we need to be direct with somebody but in most cases, we're called to sit down with somebody, talk with them about Christ, reason with them, and dialogue with them about salvation. That's what Paul did here. And it's far more difficult, but it's far more accurate, I think. Again, to review, here's what we've learned. What can we learn from Paul's example? He had a heart of the, for the spiritual needs. He was willing to adapt his method. Um, and though he was troubled by idolatry, he reasoned with the people. Now, fourthly, Paul used the beliefs and creeds of the culture around him as a springboard for the gospel. And I alluded to this earlier. He made mention, and we'll see this in just a second, in, in this text that follows, of, of three different sayings that existed in Athenian culture back then that he used as a springboard for the gospel. First one is, to an unknown God. He says right there in the middle of that paragraph, I found... Also this altar with the inscription, To an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. <clears throat> Similar inscriptions like this have been actually found in, in, in the ancient world. And I just want to show you a picture of it. This isn't taken from Athens. But really, there are surviving inscriptions in stone that say, To an unknown God. And so we know this isn't <laughs> just something that's made up here. Uh, of course it's true. Um, and the, the idea behind these pillars was there were so many gods in the, the uh, Athenian pantheon to remember, you know, what if you forgot one? What if I, I thanked the wrong one? So they made these, these monuments to say, in case I forgot, in case I don't know who it is to thank, to an unknown god, here you go, this is meant to be the catch-all for anything. Paul uses this, not to affirm that belief, but use it as a springboard for something else. He says, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. So Paul took the phrase that originally referred to a God in a plurality of gods and used it to speak about monotheism, about the one true God. And the Greeks thought Paul was advocating for two new gods, as I said, Jesus and the goddess resurrection. <clears throat> right here, this is where we see it. 
we think he's preaching foreign divinities, but that's just them misunderstanding what he meant. Second phrase that Paul uses is, in him we live and move and have our being. And that's taken from a poet. We, uh, we actually can go back and find the poet who, who wrote that and used that kind of language. Paul was making the point that in contrast to the plurality of gods that existed, there is in fact only one God who made everything. And in this second quote, in him we live and move and have our being, Paul's point is that in contrast to the Epicurean or Stoic ways of thinking, God is not distant and uninvolved, but he can be known, as verse 27 says. And that he is in everything. He's very close. He's very near to us. He can be known. God's not a force that's in the rock and in the trees and in the hills. He is a distinct person. The third phrase from culture that Paul uses is this, for we are indeed his offspring. Many commentators agree this is from Aratus's poem, Phenomena, a philosopher poet from the third century who spoke of Zeus. He was a Stoic philosopher. So Paul uses a Stoic saying in talking to Stoics. He uses this as a way to affirm the biblical idea that God is our creator. We are, in fact, his creation. And the point here that I want you to see from all three of these sayings is that in these three instances, Paul uses the culture around him to talk about the gospel. Those are the slogans and beliefs that Paul used from his own culture. But here is the question for you. What are some commonly held beliefs in our culture that we can use to start conversations about Christ? Okay, we're not going to quote Stoic philosophers, right? Because that's not our context. Okay, but what are, and, and Tim Keller, Pastor Tim Keller of Redeemer Presbyterian Church, uh, has spoken, and I'm sure he didn't coin this phrase, but he's made it popular by talking about cultural narratives. So, what are the cultural narratives of today? What are the popularly held beliefs? that exist today that we can interact with. Okay, so for starters, let me give you an example. Okay, people talk a lot about the American dream, right? That's a cultural narrative. We live and breathe it, we're surrounded by it. Everybody's talking about wanting to be able to buy a house and get a nice car and have a dog and you know, two and a half kids and uh, I don't know what that looks like with a half kid, but, um, and then you, you have like this nice neighborhood and the green grass and you, you're able to retire well. That's the American dream, right? And that's what people are living for. Well, you can say that is one of our cultural narratives. That's like one of those three sayings that Paul used. And you can say, you know what? This thing that you're seeking after, God wants you to be happy as well. But that happiness is not found in wealth. And it's not found in a good retirement. And it's not found in a good house or car or two and a half kids. It's found in the gospel. And it's found in knowing him. That's taking a cultural narrative, an idea that's present that people can relate to, and point, using it as a starting point but turning it around to something biblical. Another common today, a theme today is individualism. People just want to be free to be themselves, and that can lead to many terrible things. We can turn that around and say, you know what? God wants you to be you. God wants you to be unique, but in the way that he made you to be. God's gifted you with certain spiritual gifts and abilities, things that are unique to you, that are gifted in a certain way, and he's placed you on this earth in a certain family and in a certain city and at a certain time of history so that you can glorify him. And you have tremendous worth, and that worth is given to you by Christ. That's another cultural narrative. I've started you out. Think about this question. What are some other phrases, sayings, commonly held beliefs that exist today that you can turn around for Christ?
Last thing here. Even though Paul adapted his message to his, the culture he was in, he never compromised the gospel. So he used the culture, but he didn't compromise in any way. Make sure you know that. Because he, he says here in this verse, he, God commands everyone to repent. He's definitely talking about judgment that's going to come. And he's also talking at the very end about the resurrection. So he's keeping the main elements of the gospel. He's not making it appealing by watering it down. We need to make sure that we don't compromise our message when we share the gospel with others. Now notice, Paul's example here is not great because everybody is converted. That's not the basis for success. Because you see here, when some heard this about the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. So some believed and some didn't. But that doesn't matter. Our job is just to share the gospel with people. So here's my real encouragement for you tonight. Not to focus on converts and the numbers and all that kind of thing, but learn some lessons that we see from Paul. Number one, and I have three for you. Know the gospel. Know the gospel forwards and backwards so that you can share it with somebody at a moment's notice. I'm not asking you to memorize the entire Bible. Just the, the core teachings of it, the, the most important thing. Know the gospel. Pray for courage to witness and for a heart for the lost around you. Just like Paul had a heart. He didn't just see the idols and then kept on moving to the next place. He stopped, he engaged in conversation, he had a heart. That's what drove it. And number three, think about the culture around you and ways that you can use it to start conversations about Christ. What are some of the commonly held beliefs that, are, that exist among people who are non-Christians, people that you know? How can you use that as a unique way to start a conversation? to talk to them about Jesus Christ. Know, pray, and think. These are the three things that I want you to take away tonight. Think about the culture that you live in. This is our mission field. This is our Athens. Okay? It's not a Christian culture anymore. Mostly we're dealing with individuals who don't share the same biblical worldview that we do. And so how are we going to use that? Take some notes here from Paul's example of evangelism, and may God use us in a foreign culture that we live in as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we heard this morning, we are called to be ambassadors for Jesus Christ. We are called to bring this message of reconciliation. Wisdom comes in in knowing how exactly to do that, how to start a conversation, how to engage our neighbors how to engage our friends, our family. God, it can be so difficult. I pray that we wouldn't be paralyzed by fear, but that we would take some of the lessons that we've learned tonight, that we would know the gospel, that we would pray for a heart that's concerned about the loss so that we see the needs around us that have always existed that perhaps we might have missed before, and that we would think about ways that we can turn our culture around as an opportunity to share about salvation through Jesus Christ and reconciliation to God and peace with God. And God, use us in a powerful way as a church and individually, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, and you are dismissed.